Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back with another episode of Gov Actually, and um, you know we're 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 approaching forty episodes now, and this has got to be one of my absolute favorites. We'll forget the others; they're all practice, because we've brought one of my public policy heroes to to the Gov Actually um, audience here. It's Cass Sunstein. He's a professor at uh, at Harvard Law School. He's the founder and director of program. The program on behavioral uh, economics and public policy studies. He's an advisor to presidents and kings and 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 people all around the world, and more importantly, to the Gov Actually listeners, all twelve of you. Uh, he's going to give us some really great insights into um, into some of the most meaningful challenges we're facing in public policy right now. Um, Danny, I know you're a Cass Sunstein fanboy, so. But, you know, can you can you talk about how important this is to you as well before we get to the it's huge. You didn't mention that Cass is the former uh, administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at um, at OMB. And um, I I had the the honor and privilege of serving at OMB at the same time as Cass. Um, And and Cass, I'll turn it over to you. And I'll tee up the reason why Dan and I were so inspired to uh, to beg you to come on the podcast. And that is, Dan and I have been obviously focused like the rest of the country on um, COVID-19. And of course, in the context of this podcast, thinking about um, its impacts on government, the government workforce, the government role. And there's so many different directions you can go to explore um, the issue, but one question that came up is we have been noting that one of the more significant debates and dialogues that is going on in the country right now is the tension between healthcare protection and economic implications of that. And so this whole question about to open and not to reopen and how do you balance the the requirements that are in place to protect the spread of the infectious disease with the impact it's having on on businesses and the economy is one that is everywhere. Everyone's talking about it and weighing in. And Dan and I were reflecting that actually this is something that the government tackles all the time in the context of regulations. When we decide to regulate air quality or uh, water quality or, or highway safety, we're always taking into account the benefits of those regulations against the costs, and the costs are often economic. So I wanted to kind of have you talk to us about, are we right? Is this something that the government has always tackled, or is there something different about this debate versus the traditional cost-benefit analysis of a regulation? Okay, great. And uh, the two of you are fantastic colleagues and heroes of mine. So it's a privilege and a joy really to get to talk to you on these topics. Uh, I think the answer to your question is both it's very normal and it's surreal. So let's talk about the normal first. Uh, The balancing, as you say, of lives saved even against costs 
happens all the time and there are strategies that government uses and they're not politically contested really uh, to, to handle them. So if you have a air pollution regulation, let's say, that will save one life in the next 10 years, it's very stringent, uh, but one life will be saved and it's gonna cost $90 billion. Uh, the chance that that gets through the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs or the Office of Management and Budget or the National Economic Council or anyone who's thinking about it is basically zero. Or suppose you have a regulation that's going to make the road safer and let's say it's going to save 500 lives a year, pretty good regulation, and let's say it's going to cost $10 million. The chance that that is not going to go through the government is zero or really close to zero. Yeah. So the strategies for dealing with high benefit, low cost regulations, and the word regulation tends to make people snore, so think of it as policy, yeah. is, is, is really high. And the chance that low benefit, high cost things will get through is really low. Um, and this, you know, is, is in that ballpark, meaning there are things you could imagine doing tomorrow, which would be really severe and not do much. And there are things that you could imagine doing tomorrow, which would be really lenient, and a lot of people are going to die. And then there are hard questions, which, you know, the government faces a lot, where how you weigh let's say, I'm going to give one that's genuinely hard, saving of 10 lives for uh, $120 million, the government would regard that as hard. And I, I can yeah. explain why in a moment. Well, that, there's, a, there's a really non-boring question in the spectrum you just outlined, which is, at some point, the logic of that spectrum is the government does get to a point in these cost-benefit analysis where they really are placing a value on a human life. And that's something that doesn't get talked about or promoted a lot. Maybe it does in, in academic circles, but, but the reality is the government does, in this context, assign an economic or dollar value to a human life. It sounds like it does. Am I, am I correct about that? Completely correct. And uh, I'll tell you a story. I testified before Congress before I went into the government on exactly these issues. And I noticed that the value at that time that government agencies were putting on a human life were highly variable and not very public. And so I said to a very diverse panel uh, in the Senate, uh, um, you know, this is something that should be decided by the national legislature. So the assignment of a value for human life, that's something that Congress should do. That diverse agencies shouldn't be all over the map on it. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. That, that, <laughs> was, that was my of many bad moments in testifying. I think that wins Olympic gold for horrible. The members, the Democrats and Republicans, that you want us to put a value on human life? Uh, Maybe we shouldn't have called you. Okay, but now let's talk about what government, meaning the executive branch, actually does. The value is $10 million. That's, uh, it's now relatively uniform. There isn't a lot of uh, variation around that $10 million. EPA does it. Department of Transportation does it. Uh, basically, they all do it. Food and Drug Administration, all in that vicinity. Now, if um, you're thinking that's a crazy number, it's an arbitrary number, the underlying analysis is 
uh, a little more in intuitive, I think, than the number suggests. And as the people all over the United States face risks of, let's say, one in 100,000. So if you work on a construction site, it might be that you face a mortality risk of one, one in 100,000. How much do people demand to face that risk? And the answer, the, the studies suggest, is on average 100 bucks. So people demand $100 to face a mortality risk of one in 100,000. And you can go down to, let's say, one in 50,000, how much do they demand, or one in 10,000 they demand. And the ballpark number is that for mortality risks, people require a stated number. And if you do a little multiplication, the $10 million value of statistical life falls out of that. So what we're really not talking about is how much is you know, your kid worth or your sibling worth. We're talking about how much should the government spend to eliminate a statistical risk of mortality, which is typically a pretty low level risk. And the theory is that if we want to map onto you know, human beings' risk reduction desires, uh, this is the best way we've got. And we shouldn't force people, let's say on their water bill, to spend $500 to eliminate a risk of one in 100,000 if they're willing to pay only $100. So for Safe Drinking Water Act regulation, they're thinking, how much are we willing to pay? And that, uh, or would they demand? And that is the, the basic theory. Now, it's not, I think, in terms of theories of what uh, we should be doing in terms of valuing uh, mortality risks. It's not, you know, completely satisfying, but we don't have anything. We, I think the technical phrase is we ain't got anything better. So yeah. no, that, that's super helpful. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, this is a very GovActually type conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go a little deeper and say there's also a division. There's an opportunity to use division here and say, well, you're going to divide the benefit of a regulation by the um, uh, number of lives saved, but in order, you know, and, and arrive at that, you know, something around that 10 million and then, you know, decide whether it, it, it seems to make sense. In order to do that though, there's also the calculation of the number of lives saved and the benefit. Can you double click a little bit on how you arrive at those? Because I imagine those calculations are pretty complicated and subjective as well. Uh, I hope not subjective, so I'm a real fan of this, um, and I hope at least a lot of the time not that complicated. So I'll give you one that's based on reality. Um, there's a, a, a death on the roads regulation that will prevent 200 deaths a year. We multiply that times 10 million, and we get a really big number. That's the benefit. Then the cost of that regulation is, is, let's say, and I'm going to give a ballpark number, $500 million. We're in business. Uh, this, the benefits are going to crush the costs of that one. And so the, the basic exercise, which gov actually, the government actually engages in all the time, is 10, 10 million times the number of lives saved and compare that to the cost. Now, it might get a little complicated because the benefits won't be exhausted by the lives saved. You might prevent property damage in the case of uh, road safety. You might prevent non-fatal accidents, and we have to value those too. But whatever value we place on those, chances are they're going to be smaller than that 10 million multiplied times 200. 
So they won't typically make the difference, but they might make the difference. I'll give you one example, which it was in government's own decision-making, and this is one where Trump and Obama completely agreed in the end. Uh, it's every car in the United States now has a camera in it, every new car. So you see behind, it's called the rear visibility rule. And if you look at the rear visibility rule, it costs a lot, uh, hundreds of millions, basically in the vicinity of 600 million. The, the number of lives saved isn't very high. Um, it's in the dozens rather than the hundreds. Uh, so the arithmetic gets a little um, uh, even on both sides of the ledger. And once you add the property damage and the injuries and the hurts to the hurt injury to the car and the dozens of people whose lives are saved, uh, it's, it's looking probably okay if you add the fact that people are driving cars where they have cameras and they can see behind and it's easier. That's probably worth at least over the lifetime of a vehicle, $20, $25. And I actually have new data so suggesting. But that was a challenging one because the numbers on uh, the numbers aren't, it isn't obvious that the benefits are higher than the costs or vice versa. But much of the time, it, it really is obvious. And though there's an interest group on one or another side who's pushing for or against it, uh, the numbers for government actually are in a shockingly high percentage of the cases just decisive and the interest groups can shout all they want. I had a phrase in, when I was in government, which is uh, when the interest groups were shouting, but the numbers showed it was clearly good or bad, I would say that's sewer talk. And within OMB, at least my little circles, the notion of sewer talk was a, uh, a kind of, uh, Cass is a ridiculous person, and also this is a, a, a good, way of fending off uh, political pressure when the thing's clearly a good idea or clearly not a good idea. So I, I want to take the conversation to uh, to COVID and I have a very Danny Werfelish way of transitioning. So if you've listened to previous podcasts, you know, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with movies. And when we did our rack and stack of our favorite movies of the decade, I named The Martian as one of my favorite movies. And as you were talking, I'm thinking about um, Matt Damon stuck on the on Mars and the amount of money in that movie that that NASA and the rest of the world invested in saving that one person's life and it was and 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 I'm thinking like you know in a normal cost benefit it was it was it wasn't the right thing to do but in the context of a lot of other intangible factors it also felt like the exact right thing to do you know, the culture of we don't leave, you know, astronauts behind and, and the impact it might have on, on space travel to, to leave a man out there to, to die like that. And there, there are probably a lot of other intangibles. And I'm just wondering, um, I don't know if you saw The Martian and this resonates at all, Cass, is it, but is there something about cost-benefit analysis that, uh, that we need to rethink in certain circumstances, the going back to the surreal that you mentioned earlier? Okay, so uh, I have seen the movie. And okay. uh, well, the best movie of all time is clearly Chariots of Fire. Okay. Uh, the Martian is good. 
Okay, good. Good. Let's talk about it. There's something known in kind of economics as the identifiable victim effect. And the idea is that if there's one person whose life is really going to turn on how much we're willing to spend for that person, the numbers will be astronomically high. So if there's one person who's going to live or die based on what we do tomorrow, uh, astronaut or not, it might be a little girl in a well, the expenditure will be anomalously, let's just say high, compared to how much we'd be willing to spend to prevent a risk of one over 100,000 faced by 300 million people. Even though the number of lives you're going to save in the latter case is going to crush the single life you're going to save in the first case. Now, if, if, it, if it's an astronaut, it might be that the kind of social costs of that death are way higher than would be captured by the one person. So right. that's one possibility. Another possibility is that there's a humanly you know, precious uh, feeling, let's call it, which is you do what you can to save a human life. Yeah, And then, thank goodness, or maybe we could get a little theological about it, that there is that um, uh, uh, human instinct, but it wouldn't map on to saying we're going to drive the level of deaths on the roads down to zero, because the most effective and maybe only way to do that is to outlaw cars or that we're gonna drive the number of deaths from air pollution down to zero. And the way to do that would be to you know, not have energy except certain kinds, and that would be economically catastrophic. So I think COVID is a little bit in between. So it's more like the traffic safety and the air pollution case in the, than the Martian, that there isn't a single person you know, who we can spend yeah. a lot of resources on or not that is called up by the current policy gov questions government is asking. The hospitals have to ask this question. Yes, how much money to spend to keep someone alive? Now, in cases in which they're really, really sick, um, it's, it's not like the Martian. It's that, you know, maybe you can extend it by a few days. So I'll tell you why, uh, because of uh, COVID-19, cost-benefit analysis and I have made an appointment to see a marriage counselor. Uh, we have <laughs> Which a, is a piece a very, you recently wrote, right? You, you, yeah, you wrote that in. Okay. So we have the cost-benefit analysis and I are, you know, we love each other deeply, or maybe it's not reciprocal. Maybe I love cost-benefit analysis. It doesn't love me back. But the love of one side of the relationship has certainly been enough to keep it going. But the reason it's uh, confounding for me is connected with your great question. So let's suppose, as some studies, in fact, recently have suggested, uh, if we scale back dramatically on our protective measures, or maybe if we scale back significantly, but not dramatically, uh, 1.2 million Americans will die. Let's suppose that's ballpark for exercise. Uh, and let's suppose there are 330 million Americans. Now we're talking about a statistical risk of one over 300. We're not in the domain that the government actually focuses on which is one over 100,000 or one over 50,000, talking about one over 300 risk of death. Yeah. And that's, it's not like the Martian where it's one over one, but one over 300, what do we do with that? 
And the data we have, which suggests how much people are demanding to face a low-level risk, tells us nothing about a risk of one over 300. So we don't have data about it. And then it gets even more confusing, I think, as we start to uh, you know, get a little deeper. Uh, the risks are faced most severely by people who are over 80 and then people over 70, the mortality risk. What do we do about that? How should we yeah. think about that? I have a kind of standard economic thought, which I can tell you, but how do we value a life of someone who's 70 and up? I, I want to hear that. I think we should take a break and then yeah. we come back. And uh, I was, you anticipated my next question and I was just struggling with how to word it around kind of the notion that this, it's one over 300, but certain segments of society are impacted differently. So let's tackle that right after the break. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. Gov Actually listeners, if you have enjoyed listening to Cass Sunstein talk about cost-benefit analysis today, then you'll love his brand new book. It's called The Cost-Benefit Revolution, and it's out from the MIT Press and available everywhere. Back to the show. Hey, Danny, we're back. Uh, Cass was about to explain to us how we're all metaphorically the Martian stuck on Mars, and and the question is how much is NASA going to get us off, uh, spend to get us off? Yeah, I mean, eventually in this podcast, I'm hoping – we get into saving private Ryan and then go down this whole path of how much has been spent to save Matt Damon over the course of his uh, Hollywood career. Movie career? That's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, but anyway, Cass, you were talking about um, before the break, this interesting, super challenging thing when you get to the one over the 300, but the 300 the risk is higher for people in their 70s and 80s. How, how do you productively and effectively have a, a national conversation on that? Great. So uh, a recent president would say often in uh, challenging meetings after they'd gone on for a while, uh, okay, we've admired the problem, or would say, meanwhile, back at the problem. But notwithstanding his caution, I'm not going to try to solve it for a while. I'm going to admire it for a little bit. Great. So, so uh, let's talk about why we might value uh, someone 70 at a lower level than the $10 million standard. Let's just talk about that very uncomfortable possibility. Uh, one reason might be that if you're, let's say, 80, the number of life years you have left is a lot lower than if you're 30. And but that matters because what the government is trying to do is to allocate resources in a way that has the largest beneficial consequences. And if you give one someone two more years, that's great. That's really important. But it's not as great as giving someone 40 years. And if that seems very uncomfortable, I've actually been involved in some studies. I wouldn't take them to the bank or anything, but where Americans would rather save, you know, I'm gonna make up a number, they'd rather save uh, 100 kids who are 12 than save 150 adults who are 80. 
So the, the people's moral intuitions are alert, alert to this. Uh, another possibility is you think, you know, back at the standard economic analysis, which the government does use, how much people are willing to pay. Uh, it's very possible, and I think the data is broadly supportive of this, that 40-year-olds are very concerned about mortality risks. 80-year-olds are very concerned too, but they're not willing to pay as much. And that's because they're, they're old, they don't have as many years left. And either of those, you know, directions, one is about life years and one is about willingness to pay. Uh, I think life years is more intuitively um, acceptable, would suggest um, more resources to protect people who are young than people who are really old. Now, another way that's a little more comfortable, I think, to get into this is something which my own state, Massachusetts, has just you know, adopted as a policy, not a mandate, but a policy. It's opening it up a bit, but it's saying that if you're 65 and up, uh, you should stay home if you can. It's, if you're younger, it doesn't say that. And that is making a form of discrimination that's just suggesting an elevated risk for the older. Now you might say that, okay, we're not gonna have lower values for the older, but we might adopt policies on cost benefit grounds that are more aggressive for people who are over a certain age. So it might be that, and, and there's great cost-benefit data supporting what I'm about to say, uh, targeted um, openings uh, have uh, much better benefit cost numbers than untargeted closings or openings. That's obscure. Suppose the government says, okay, everybody has to stay home in, in hotspot places. Or let's suppose the government says nobody has to stay home in hotspot places. The first will have high health benefits and high economic costs. Those will be health costs too, by the way. Uh, staying home can cause health risks, uh, elevated risk of suicide, among other things, I believe. Oh, the other policy, which is open up, is going to have economic benefits but health risks. Something more targeted that says something like, look, if you have pre-existing health conditions, you're going to have to stay home, or we strongly encourage you to stay home. Or if you're 70 and up, uh, either we strongly encourage you or we require you. And people in, who are healthy and who are, uh, or people who are immune, maybe they've had it already, and maybe the probability is, as I think the data suggests, that they are immune, go for it. But if you've never been sick, you're 75 years old, or you have a heart condition, stay home. And, and there you can get a, a, a high percentage of the health benefits and also not face a high percentage of the health, of the economic costs you would face if everything shut down. Why do you think, uh, why do you think more states aren't using this eminently sensible, we'll call it Massachusetts method? Well, uh, one reason is the, the ethical um, concern that it seems like a form of discrimination against people who are you know, both politically powerful and kind of sympathetic. But I have a hunch, which is over the course of the next year, uh, the kind of soft guidance which, which targets people who are older or who have pre-existing conditions uh, will be, we're gonna see a lot of it. And it'll be phrased in a way that's protective rather than stigmatizing. Is there, I wanna ask a, a a question about a, a particular 
segment where, where Dan has some expertise as well, and that's public transport, just to kind of play out some, some, some of these ideas. As I think about, let's say, let's take DC as an example. Um, uh, and because I assume a lot of our listeners live in DC. Um, so the metro gets pretty crowded going uh, from the suburbs of DC into DC. And to the extent as we move forward and start to reopen, we significantly limit ridership on the metro in order to avoid crowding. That's going to mean less people coming into the city, into an urban center, less, less foot traffic, and therefore, you know, theoretically a much higher economic impact on small businesses and other businesses and, and, and real estate in the DC area because of that one decision to, uh, to limit ridership. And as you think about tar you know, what to open and what not to reopen, should we, all, should we be thinking about it in terms of the, the various economic impacts? Uh, you know, should, we, should we lean more towards more crowded metro cars because we're balancing the, the broader economic impact of limiting metro ridership? Or, or is, that, is, that, is that, am I not thinking about that correctly? Am I not exactly sure how to word the question, but I wanna make sure I'm understanding how you would break that problem down. So here's how some administrations, maybe including this one, would approach this question, I think. They get a bunch of people in the room who would be asking this question for every uh, possible uh, uh, intervention with respect to public transport, uh, how many lives and uh, you know incidences would we eliminate? How many lives would we save? And how many disease incidences would we eliminate? Can we have ballpark numbers? Can we have a range, maybe upper and lower bounds on that? And what would be the concrete economic effects of uh, one or another step. So let's say we limited ridership, let's call it option A, and it's a really aggressive ridership limiting. And then there's option B, which is moderate. Uh, how, what is the uh, health benefit for the next year of going A rather than B? And I'd focus on deaths. That's, that's the major thing. Do you save two lives? Do you save 100 lives? Do you save you know, 3,000 lives? And then the process would ask, uh, Department of Transportation might know something about this insofar as there's a federal role, um, how much uh, economic hit would there be uh, from option A compared to option B? And it, what would that connote concretely in terms of real lives and real numbers? We'd probably want to know something, I think, about the distributional effect so is it that you know poor people and uh, people of color are, are hit especially hard by yeah. option option B, which is the less health protective? I think that should be deemed relevant. Uh, it might be a targeted policy which says we're going to go option B. That's the moderate one. But if you have a pre-existing condition, don't go on the metro. And if you're over the age of seventy, don't go on the metro. Um, that might be yeah. the one. So I, I would uh, uh, wonder whether it might be best not to lean in any direction but just to assemble as much information as you can and then weigh option A, B, C, D, and E. Yeah, in, in this instance, there are a couple of uh, considerations as well. There's the transit 
worker. And so you're not just talking about the rider. The more service means more transit workers exposed to more people means more incidents. So that's another, that would be another factor. And that gets to Cass's comments about equity, who's impacted. There's also, um, it's not just a supply issue, it's a demand issue. You could, you could multiply by 10x the current number of trains in the metro system and they're still gonna be as empty as they are because most of the riders have the option of telecommuting and are going to, they're going to make their own decision. It's uh, services like the bus, the rider has less options, less transportation options, and frankly, less work flexibility where maybe you know you should be exploring how you improve and and add to the service so you can reduce their exposure to crowding and therefore potential incidents of of getting COVID nineteen and so um, it becomes it becomes multivariate pretty quickly and I'm curious Cass how how do you juggle how do you juggle all these uh, 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 different variations how do you juggle all these factors as you try to come up with the right policy Can I tell you one of my biggest surprises seeing inside government uh, uh, I didn't anticipate this that uh, maybe I saw somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 regulations at one or another stage. And the number of them for which issues of equity or distribution were kind of outcome determinative was really small. Not zero, but really small. And I thought, why am I not seeing equity or distribution being outcome determinative? And it was usually because the people who were benefiting from the thing we're also bearing the cost of the thing. So if you had a safe drinking water regulation, which let's say would uh, reduce risks of one or another kind, it was also the poor people would bear the cost with the least pleasure because they didn't have a lot of money. Or if there's a regulation involving making cars safer, um, if you make the cars more expensive and a little bit safer, you hurt and help poor people at the same time. Now there are some which do, do, do have this feature, there's regu regulations involving prison rape and disability, that very prominent regulations that had uh, distributional character. And one way kind of to go about it is to say, uh, if the benefits are, once you get into the details, it typically sorts itself out. So it might be that option A is just you know, massively better than option B on health grounds. And that for the reason you gave, that the telecommute is always possible. A lot of people are using their computers. The adverse effect on uh, economic effect is, is modest. Go for it. And uh, the, the hard cases would be where the benefits and costs are kind of close to equipoise. It's going to cost a lot and it's going to have public health benefits. And then it may be that uh, poor people or people who are really struggling with something are particularly adversely affected. Now, it could be easy if they're adversely affected on both the health and the economic side, then it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't change the outcome. But if it's the case that, let's say, people are really struggling in life are going to face a very, very bad public health hit, and the people who are going to be hurt economically are people who are doing pretty well. That that's a pretty good, in my view, tiebreaker reason to go for the public health protective 
measure. I think uh, with the question I, I was trying to dig into a little bit is, you know, in the case of environmental impact studies, you ha have to look at multiple options at arriving at some outcome and then value the costs and benefits of those options. Um, in, in, the kinda, in, the, in the kind of example that Danny gave, we were just looking at the train and not saying, well, is there some other way to get people to their destination? How often in regulation do you see that kind of, you know, uh, and, and is that possibility, you know, for, for rethinking your relationship with cost-benefit analysis that maybe it should be, I hate to even say this, more of an open relationship than... It's becoming more passionate, <laughs> the relationship. It's becoming really extremely romantic, the candles and the music. Uh, and let me, let me say why, that uh, this is just an institutional fact about uh, the operation of government. OMB and the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs kind of lean toward opening the number of alternatives that the federal government looks at. And agencies often lean against that. Uh, and the reason OMB and OIRA lean toward that is they are thinking, you know, maybe we can find a way to promote goals that don't involve this agency, it involves something else. And the agency is thinking, look, this is our job to do this. And the fact that, you know, the Department of Transportation can do something or the Department of Justice or Congress, uh, that's just not what we're legally charged with thinking about. But frequently, it, it is a really good idea uh, to open the view screen and to say, well, maybe we have a, a, a a telework option now, which is increasingly attractive, and that that can ensure that the adverse economic impact is lower. And I think under, you know, all administrations since President Reagan, the impetus to, to broaden the view screen, to think, what have we got here that will, let's say, deal with air pollution that doesn't involve the only option on the table, that, that's great, great progress. Well, we're, we're, um, we're running low on time, and I wanted to just shift to one more industry that's close to your heart, and that's universities and education. And um, from your vantage point, are there any, you know, particular uh, insights that you have around this kind of question of opening up universities versus distance education. I mean, how, how are you, just from a more personal versus cost benefit as a professor, what, what are some of your thoughts and emotions as you think about the, the upcoming fall semester? And, and before you answer, I just want you to be careful as you think about this, because I've got a rising college junior sitting in the room with me, and she just wants to hear that you're going to be a full-throated advocate of reopening. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, let me say a little I, a bit about personal experience. So I taught three courses this spring, and they all shifted uh, from in-person to online, basically in a heartbeat. So I got to see in real time the differences in the experience. My experience as a teacher is that the online experience is miraculously okay, but clearly inferior to the experience of being in the classroom with students. So a lot less good, but 
a, a miracle that it works. Uh, I think my experience is that the students' evaluations are highly variable, where a number of them said, you know, it's not as good as being there, not least because we're not with our friends and having the university experience, but also the class isn't as good. But it's pretty good, I learned, versus others who said, you know, I'm too distracted, it's, um, it's crazy, it's an it's, it's a extremely poor substitute. Uh, so my judgment is that the benefit of in-person, let's say college, is really high compared to the benefit of online college. And we're squarely in the ballpark of what we've been discussing. If you can do college with having minimal health risks to people, then clearly do it. If, if doing college will result in, you know, mortality for, name your number, uh, the Martian, let's say, would be a low number, but a tragedy. And the Martians would be a high number and, uh, you know, uh, completely awful. And so the judgment should be about weighing. Uh, my observation from just reading the newspaper is that universities really, really want to open. The uh, desire to do it right is intense. Um, at the same time, if the thought is that the some of the some of the students over whom you have you know, a fiduciary responsibility of some kind. This is not a legal term, this is a human term. A number of them are, are gonna die. Uh, wait, and we have to wait to see what it's gonna look like, and it's, it's too early to know. And then one last question on that, just from an equity issue, you have international students who won't be able to come in potentially because of, of travel restrictions. Does, is that an example of a of an equity issue that factors in, or, or it's just kind of a, you know, something like you said earlier? I think in some cases it's uh, you know you feel that equ the equity is determinative, and in other cases it's not. It's relevant. So it's, uh, thank you for raising it. It's really important. So one thing I see is that there are international students who get to go to American universities and it changes their lives. They may become prime ministers and presidents or you know, head their ministry of justice. And the American universities have, um, I've seen this more coming back from government, have a transformative effect on uh, countries. And to take that away from people and countries in the world, there's an equity issue. There's also a big social loss. And in terms of people getting along really well, people aren't getting along as well in any period as they might, but the fact that people have been educated at, in the country with which they're dealing, that's extremely positive. That matters. Well, I don't know about you, Dan, but I hope we were up to the, to the task of, of, of interviewing Cass because he's, I could go another like 10 hours, literally. Um, but thank you, Cass, for, for joining. Dan, any, any parting remarks? No, I, 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 would, I, would, I would do a Zoom class with Cass Sunstein anytime. I don't think he's a, a fair uh, uh, measure. I mean, I think that that's, uh, uh, it's been a great conversation, Cass. It's always good to see and hear from you. And we look forward to talking some more and, 
and, uh, and, and seeing exactly what the far end of the value of Matt Damon really, really is, you know, and I think we got a couple more movies to determine that. Absolutely. I have one parting remark just to kind of reflect on the reach of Gov actually. In the last episode, I mentioned that I was, uh, ran out of uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah. And um, God bless him, my, my cousin-in-law, who's a, a Marine and stationed in Hawaii, was listening, and he sent me a, pa- a care package of uh, hand sanitizer made in Hawaii. And so- uh, I think you took a Marine sanitizer, that's- Yes, so, so to Seth, who's a thank you for your service, and uh, my favorite cousin-in-law, um, and he's an avid Gov Actually listener. So there you go, all the way out in Hawaii. They may mention that uh, original vinyl of the Beatles' Rubber Soul, I used to have, but I don't have. Oh, okay. Does Seth, it. if you're listening, <laughs> and you have it, let's get it over to Cass. Gov Actually awesome. Marketplace, okay. Yes. A new, a new branch. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Cass. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and thanks, as always, to the strong and silent support of Billy Mitchell. Yes. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. All right, Cass, we can't appreciate it so much. Thanks for joining and stay safe in Massachusetts. Thanks. It was great. Thank yeah. you. Best to Samantha and the family. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to Gov Actually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Gov Actually podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.